0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 351, and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Nate Berkepec is the author of The Complete Guide to Rails Performance, the creator of the Rails Performance Workshop and the Maintainer of Puma. Almost 100 episodes ago, Nate guested on the show on episode 260, so definitely check that one out, but welcome back to the show, Nate.
1: Hey, thanks, Brittany.
0: Absolutely. So, Nate, we covered your developer origin story already, so what has changed for you in the last year?
1: Oh, in the last year, well, I mean, lots changed for everyone in the last year. Um, So, uh, a a year ago, I was, um, I don't don't remember which month of the year we talked, actually, so I, I, was kind of finishing up this workshop tour. I was doing the Rails work performance workshop in person. And um, I was uh, doing that in various cities across the United States. And then in August of last year, um, my wife and I took off and left the United States and uh, traveled around the world for the last year and doing the kind of digital nomad thing. So still working, but working from uh, different parts of the world and got to see bunch of different countries, it was really awesome. Um, And then COVID hit, (laughs) as everyone knows, in March. And um, we stayed in Japan from March until August. And then um, in August we came back to the United States and I've been back uh, here in Northern New Mexico since then. So um, professionally, um, uh, not that much has changed. I'm, I'm doing my workshop and Selling my book and all that, but uh, my living situation uh, changed a lot over the last year.
0: Yeah, I've heard through the grapevine that Japan handled it incredibly well. So I'm curious, what was your experience coming back from Japan?
1: Well, it was pretty cool. It was a pretty unique experience to have, I think. Um, you know, because in March, no one really knew what was going on yet, and then um, I was here, was there all summer, and. Um, So I have a pretty rare experience of having lived through this pandemic now in Japan for five months and now the United States for three months or so. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, they, they definitely benefit from having a society that's used to following rules so like wearing masks outside is like 95% compliance, right? Like it's just not an issue. It, I, I, I've been watching the news and it seems like it's become more of an issue, but you know, for the first five months of the pandemic, when we were there, there was really no problem with anybody. Everyone just wore masks all the time and wasn't a big deal, you know? And um, I definitely not used to hear like all the, I guess um, uproar around like wearing masks and like, Uh, that, like, also in Japan, everyone, one thing I've noticed is in Japan, everyone wears paper masks. So, like, it's a society, for better or worse, that uh, doesn't have a lot of uh, compulsions around waste. (laughs) So, like, if you've ever been to Japan, like, they love plastic waste. Like, everything has, like, way too much packaging, right? So, like, this idea of, like, you had a mask, a paper mask that you wore every day, and then, like, threw it out, like, everyone was fine with that. But I think what we know about these masks now is like those paper masks work better than the cloth ones. And um, uh, here, like people wear like these like handkerchiefs and like bandanas and stuff, which like, I don't know if they really do anything. So um, that was definitely a big difference I noticed was like just around mask wearing the, the the. cultural stuff is completely completely different and you know I think everyone knows the statistics are quite a bit better there than they are here now. Um, we were eating in uh, in restaurants um, in in June and July when they opened back up and so you know I think the numbers kind of speak for themselves there.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. And it's so cool that you got to do that nomad period. I'm so glad that you got to do it before the pandemic hit. So previously you were traveling the country, traveling the world, right? And doing your workshop, correct?
1: Yeah, so like in January, I was in Mexico and um, I got to do, was doing my workshop remotely at that point. Um, so I, I did it with um, 50 or so participants um, in Q1 did that for a month. And so, yeah, it's, um, it's been great. I mean, yeah, we, we, we thank our lucky stars every day that the pandemic happened in, you know, February and March and it didn't happen in August when we left, you know, that would have been quite a bit different.
0: (laughs) So yeah. So let's talk about how the rails performance workshop has evolved. So you prior to the pandemic had been doing it remotely, but it sounds like you're now at a hundred percent remote, correct?
1: Yeah. So, um, I used to do it in person, so it's it started as a in person workshop that I I delivered in New York and San Francisco, and then I did it in a bunch of cities in the U.S. over the summer, and um and then in January, not because of the pandemic, but because I was in I wanted to travel, I started doing it remotely, and um, that worked pretty well. But I I was essentially still just like delivering that same one day workshop over four, two hour sessions, like live, like, like we just get on zoom and I would just talk for two hours. And what I've learned is that delivering this stuff remotely, um, you can't just take what you did in person and then just put it on zoom. Like for whatever reason, I think it's probably cause we have our computers open and like, you know, like distraction is just one click away that we you just can't do like a two hour zoom lecture like that just does not work um i mean it worked okay but like it's not it's not the same effect as doing it in person um and the other thing i learned which i didn't anticipate was like people i i was i was recording these these zooms and people went back and would watch the recordings because they told me they liked the ability to like go back and like play stuff multiple times, which I've never been able to do in a live workshop, right? Like, it's just not how that works. Um, and I was like, well, oh, that's really interesting. Like people like this idea of going back and watching stuff again, which I never anticipated. So um, at in like the fall of this year, um, I decided after having done this I did the workshop live a few more times for some companies over the summer. And um, I I said like, well, why don't I just make it all recorded, right? Like, why am I so like stuck on like doing this thing live? And uh, so that's what I did. So I took the workshop material, um, recorded it and edited it up and like did like a really nice recording product and uh, packaged it up in this new uh, format, which I'm now, you can go and buy online at my, my website, speedshop.co. So like now it's delivered as a series of videos, which are actually downloaded through a command line client. So you can gem install RPW and then RPW list, and it will list out the lessons in the workshop. And if you have a license key, you can actually go through those, those lessons. Um, so it's a really cool format change, which, Probably would not have happened if the pandemic hadn't happened. Um, I probably would have kept, you know, doing it in person or, or whatever. Um, but it's kind of enabled this new thing, which I really like. I think, it, I think it has a lot of advantages over doing this, you know, in these like marathon, you know, one day sessions, which are just sort of the economics of doing this, this training in person, right? Like, I can't just like go out to a company for two weeks, right? Like I just can't do that all the time, right? Like I want to get it done in a day and then move on to the next thing, right? So, but delivering this stuff remote lets people kind of take it at their own pace and they can watch it multiple times. And if they get stuck or they want to like, you know, stop halfway through and then go work on whatever other thing, like they can do that. And then the material is still there. Like there's no, there's no time limits or anything. So um, it's a really cool change to the format that definitely wouldn't have happened otherwise.
0: Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And what I want to get some insight from you is, you know, it's a living and breathing thing. So as things, you know, get updated, you're able to update that. What is the one thing that you find that you have to update the most? Is it when Rails releases a new version, Ruby, when AWS makes a change, when Cloudflare makes a change? Is there a specific thing that really seems to, you know, cause you to have to make a, a change in your recommendations?
1: Um, Definitely not Rails. So like the stuff that changes in Rails, I've I've been kind of lucky because I think we all sort of, if you've been in this long enough, like the last big, oh God, everything is different now changes to Ruby and Rails was Ruby 1.8 to 1.9 and Rails 2.3 to 3.0. Like that was like the whole ground shifted underneath your feet. Everything's different now kind of API change. And it hasn't really happened since then. So, like, nothing has really been removed from Rails, and nothing like has changed enough in Rails that like my recommendations have fundamentally shifted there. I've had to add stuff, like, you know, uh, the multi database support in Rails 6.0, and now um, the uh, uh, additional database stuff that's been added in 6.1 as of yesterday or whenever that came out. So, I'll have to, I'll have to do some stuff with that. Um, but you know, other than that, it's like all this stuff is the same active record still works the same way. It still causes the same issues, all that stuff. So rails doesn't change that much. Um, what probably does change the most is front end. So like the tools that are available and the browser standards that work well have changed a lot since I first started doing this. and like I still basically advocate for most people the same approach. Like I think most people should be doing TurboLinks or something TurboLinks like, like, um, you know, PJAX, which is what GitHub does, or um, there's all these other new frameworks that are kind of like server side, but with Ajax sprinkles kind of stuff. Um, and uh, I still basically advocate for most people that approach, but like HTTP2 push, was something that I talked a lot about in the original editions of the course and my, my um, complete guide to Rails performance. And like that is being removed from browsers now. Like they gave up on it. <laughs> and I still think it's a good idea, I guess, but like it just didn't get enough uptake. So they're gonna take it out. And um, that kind of changes a lot about the way that I have to think about how HTTP2 relates to a golden path, typical, Rails application, because a lot of my thoughts around HTTP2 were like, well, if the, the, if an intermediary proxy, like a CDN, can do these HTTP2 pushes for you, like that seems like a great way to get all the benefits of HTTP2 without like, you know, having to worry about that on the Rails side. And now they're getting rid of it. So like, I have to like, rethink how I'm thinking about like, pushing assets to, clients now, like, because I can't do this push hack anymore, which maybe never really worked that well in the first place. Anyway, we've kind of learned in the last three or four years. So, um, maybe not surprising to hear like front end seems to churn quite a bit faster than, than end, And it's just the tooling and the, the way that we implement it. Right. It's not like the, that my approach has changed. I'm still very like low JS, um, Uh, don't ship a lot of stuff down to clients. Don't do a lot of rendering in JavaScript. Uh, like that hasn't changed, but like the exact way we're going to do that certainly has changed a lot in the last five years.
0: That's so interesting. And that actually makes a lot of sense. So one thing that I saw about your course, which I thought was really cool is it's delivered by the CLI. So what does that mean?
1: Yeah. So, um, I've always looked for ways to like respect my users software freedom in like low uh low effort ways (laughs) like you know i i just do this myself right like it's just it's just me uh you know i don't i don't have a publisher i don't um i'm just working for myself everything is self-published and so it's like well why don't i why do i have to think about publishing in a way that like o'reilly would right like I don't have to, I, I, I haven't sold anything on the Kindle store. Like I don't sell stuff on I, uh, the uh, books uh, and like I don't have DRM. So like when you download my book, the complete guide to rails performance, it's like, it's just a PDF. Like there's no, I don't stamp it with like a license or anything. Like I don't do any of that stuff. And um, I've always just thought that like, I want to treat my readers the way I would like to be treated. Right, And uh, when it came to this new workshop, I actually tried a uh, coursework platform and I hated it. It was slow, it was clunky, and it had all the stuff I didn't need. And it just felt like not on brand for the kind of experience that I like to provide people that buy my stuff. And uh, I was like, well, you know, there's no rules. Like I can do whatever I want. And it, it kind of just, I don't remember how I came up with the idea, but like, I was like, well, why don't I just make my own, well, I started trying to write my own like Rails-based workshop site. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. Like I, one thing I, I, I so I wrote The Complete Guide to Rails Performance in 2016. And one thing that I always didn't like about it was I felt people were skipping over the exercises in that book and the idea of delivering the workshop on the command line was partly a way to get people to concentrate on these exercises that i put in my workshop so uh when you type rpw lesson next which brings you to the next piece of content and it opens up a directory with all of these uh this exercise in it and it's like ready to go and you've already got your editor open because it opened your editor for you like what's your excuse at that point for not doing it right like if you're just reading a book and it says hey try this thing right like you can just be like eh, i'll try that later move on to the next chapter then forget about it but like if the the program actually opens up your editor for you like it felt like okay well now people are much more likely to actually do this this hands on stuff that I've I've put the effort into you know um, including in there so um, that was that was definitely one motivation and then the other motivation was like I want to respect my users' freedom as much as possible and ship them something that requires the least amount of proprietary locked in crap possible and shipping a command line client which basically all it does is just downloads, like it sends an HTTP request with a license key to my server, and then you just get a link to a file, right? That's all, That's a, it's a fancy wrapper around that. Um, being able to do that meant that I could, uh, the command line client can be GPL licensed, and the server is also GPL licensed. So it just felt like the most ethical and like upfront way of, of shipping this. And I, I feel like it really kind of fits well with the uh, Speed Shop kind of brand. Like, you know, this is just some Ruby, it's a Ruby gem that talks to a Rails server. Like it just felt, uh, it just felt right.
0: That is exactly how I felt about it. I, when I saw it, I was like, this is so on brand for Nate. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and I cute. love when I see that kind of thing because I bet it brought you a lot of joy to write it. Oh, yeah. And it probably fit in exactly to what you were teaching.
1: Yeah, totally. And, um, I'm actually going to do a video maybe sometime like next week or something. Um, you know, because what ha- it helps to like be able to dog food your own stuff, obviously. And like, it's not like a performance issue, but the, uh, one of the actions in that server is like not super fast. Um, it's a little bit slow because it has to, uh, do, but it has to output like a JSON list of this entire, Uh, all my content right and my hypothesis is, is it's it's got a object allocation issue like in the s3 library that i'm using underneath and it's like okay well cool now like now i can fix that record it and then like show it to people and that's like you know i'm fixing my thing but also like creating uh content to to teach people so um you know the more i can do that kind of thing it seems like a win to me
0: I agree. More things for you that are on brand. This episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is application performance monitoring designed to help Rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With the developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, Scout helps you quickly pinpoint and resolve performance concerns, like n plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat, so you can spend less time debugging and more time building a great product. And with Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails, you can rest easier knowing that Scout's on watch to help you resolve performance issues before your customers ever see them. Give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial and experience firsthand why Rails developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open-source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash rubyonrails. Thank you to Scout APM for supporting the show. So I'm curious, you know, with all of us being separated from our teams, even us joining in new teams, or we haven't even gotten to meet each other in person, this seems like a really good thing to bring into a team. So is there a way that a team could get involved with the workshop?
1: Yeah, so um, normally you can just buy the workshop on a per person basis, um, but I also sell um, this additional level where I will come into your team for four weeks. And I'm I'm actually just going to be doing one of these uh, in February with the company. And, uh, it's what I've done. I did three or four of these this summer. And all it is, is, um, you get the workshop material and, uh, and then I will come in to your team for a month and I'll, I sit in your Slack and, uh, we'll do a, um, a bunch of calls during that month. So we'll do have a regularly scheduled call and then like an intro call to talk about where you're at. And like, well, what are your problems? What are your concerns? And I can kind of tailor the workshop content to you and also just work with you. And you know, when you say, come into this lesson, it's like, hey, Nate, I'm struggling, you know, applying such and such. I don't know how to fix this N plus one in our app, right? Well, you paid for my time. So like, let's go fix that thing right now. Like, let's jump on a screen share and go fix that thing. So it's sort of like bringing me on as an advisor as well as your, as your uh, TA for four weeks uh, at a time. So that's, that's what I'm um, doing for, for teams and groups right now.
0: Is it thrilling for you to get your hands on like a crusty old legacy application <laughs> or does it actually give you a lot of anxiety?
1: Well, it gives me a little bit of anxiety because like, you, you know, what, what's hard about legacy applications is all of the low hanging fruit has probably already been picked. And especially at these bigger companies, you know, I come in and they, they, they always throw me like the big like hairball god action to start with, right? And uh, it's something that their engineers have been looking at for the last like two years, right? And it's like they want me to just walk in. And it's like I'm on a limited time. And it's like, okay, well, all right, um, uh, let's, let's try to make some progress here. And, um, you know, that, that always makes me a little nervous because <laughs> I, I want to be able to just walk in and deliver these big wins. But it's tough. It's so hard on these big legacy um, apps because all that stuff has been optimized away. And you know, the, if you kind of break the action down into like, what are the 10 things this action does maybe each of those 10 things when we do the profile only takes 10% of the time, right? Like if one of those things takes 80% of the time, then I'm like thrilled. It's like, okay, well, there's going to be an easy fix here because one thing taking 80% of the time, I just know there's going to be something we can fix there. Uh, but when I look at these like big hairy actions, it's always like, well, all right, we spend five percent of our time doing this, and then four percent of our time doing that, and two percent of our time doing that, and it's like, well, you know, I could I could make that one five percent of your time kind of action a hundred times faster, and then I've only made the whole action five times or five percent faster, right? <laughs> so uh, I get a little bit nervous with that stuff, but I I do love working with companies at that level because it's 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 how I generate you know, all the, all the stuff that I've ever written and ever put into workshops has been based on those experiences, right? Like that's how I get this material. It's not because I have some huge app that I get to work on myself every day. It's because I get to go to Shopify, GitLab, uh, and all these other companies and, and, and look over shoulders and like see what people are actually struggling with. And, and that's where I get all my, my, all my stuff from. So um, it's thrilling that way.
0: I love that. So moving on to Puma, how did you get involved?
1: Uh, I want to say it was a RubyConf or a RailsConf, but um, Evan Phoenix, the uh, original author, uh, just grabbed me and Richard Schneeman from Heroku in a hallway and was like, do you want to maintain Puma? <laughs> <laughs> and we both said yes, foolishly. Um, and uh, And that was it.
0: Wow. Okay. <laughs> See, this this is why we can get excited about, you know, uh, physical conferences again because this is where yeah. the magic happens. <laughs> so, Nate, why is Puma so fast?
1: So it's not. Um, Puma is, it, 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 app servers in general, really don't have a meaningful difference between them in terms of latency. So. Uh, if you've been around the the ruby community for long enough you might remember um i don't remember how long ago this was but um, fusion uh, which makes fusion passenger um, mm-hmm. did a big thing around their release for version 5 that um what they did was like, that they, they they announced not as fusion but like all of a sudden there was this blog post that was like announcing Raptor, the new Ruby application server that's like a thousand times faster or something like that. And no one knew what Raptor was or like who was behind it. And, and then like a month later they were like, oh, this is actually fusion passenger five. And I thought it was a really cool, fun piece of marketing. But, uh, when you look at like app server latency, right? Like we're talking about the difference between serving like a, with what, what we do, what if you want to play this benchmark game, right? I'm really good at benchmark games. So if you want to play this particular benchmark game, what you do is you serve a hello world application and try to serve it as many times per second as possible. So like, uh, oh, you know, uh, app server A serves uh, this particular uh, hello world in like 10,000 requests per second. And then like, oh, well app server B is, 15,000 requests per second, so it's like 50% faster. And, but if, if you install, you know, if you install that and then like switch your application to it, it's not gonna make your app 50% faster. Uh, all an app server does is just provides the the glue, the overhead between the underlying rack application that you're serving and translating what it uh, does into HTTP, right? And it doesn't do anything else like from the time that we call your application to the time that you return us a response we're not involved right. And so the only other thing we can do is just remove overhead and app servers just don't have that much overhead like Puma is I think for hello world we're like 10,000 requests per second so that's like less than a 10th of a millisecond of overhead per request right. Um, and it's just not that much so. switching from app server to to app server is like talking about the tenths of milliseconds, you know, shaving here and there, right? So speed, no. The difference is throughput. And this is where Puma is different from what's out there. And what made Puma so popular is the multi-threaded model. So um, compared, I mean, Fusion Passenger does this, but you have to pay for it. And then unicorn does not, right? Unicorn is proudly proudly single threaded. And uh, what Puma does is is it has a pool of let's say five threads, and when it picks up a new request, uh, it will give that request to one of the threads in the pool. And because of the way the Ruby uh, global VM lock works, once one of those Threads that's working on a request. If it uh, if it encounters I/O, basically, right? Like if it's like, oh, I gotta talk to the database. One of the other threads in our pool can pick up and go do work. So this multi-threaded model, the same thing that made Sidekick so popular, um, gives us a little bit of a throughput boost on other app servers. So like for any given Rails app, we can probably serve twenty-five to thirty percent more requests per second with the same hardware than you could with Unicorn, for example. Um, So that actually just got borne out um, at GitLab. GitLab switched from um, Unicorn to Puma at the beginning of the year of of, uh, 2020, and they were able to reduce their hardware by about 25 to 30%. So um, that's that's why Puma's different. That's the special sauce that we've got is the multi-threaded model.
0: Thank you for explaining that. So because of that special sauce, I mean, in your opinion, your modest opinion, should developers only consider using Puma as their web server? or Are you open to other ones out in the market?
1: I mean, smart people don't. <laughs> so Sam Saffron over at Discourse still uses Unicorn on Discourse, and he thinks it's more stable. Um, that's fine. That's his opinion. Um, Puma has had a lot of development happening in the last 18 months to, to 24 months. and a lot has been done to improve uh, the correctness, I guess I would say, like when I say stability, I mean like uh, you know, but a bug free kind of experience. We've done a lot of work on that in the last two years and we just pushed a big, Uh, refactor of the reactor code which is what internally in Puma allows us to buffer requests Um, that had a big refactor just uh, six, eight weeks ago and I'm super happy with it. Um, It's much simpler and much more stable than it was before so uh, much more predictable. One thing I've learned from Puma is like anytime you start talking to stuff over network it's like reproducibility goes out the window. It's like I don't know you know, we we struggle to have a test suite that really like will always be green because stuff just breaks, you know, like there's so many uh, issues that can happen with sockets that like we just don't anticipate and like timing. And it's like, so, you know, it's it's definitely a challenge getting an app server to be like a stable sort of experience. But I think we've made a lot of progress on that. So um, I would say, you know, one thing is like if you're stuck and this is why Heroku recommends Puma and has for the last, I don't know how many years, is like Puma does uh, request buffering in a way that Unicorn doesn't and never will. Um, So like, if we have a client, the the sort of canonical example is like a cell phone on a cell network that sends us packets very slowly. Um, What Unicorn has to do is it has to sit there and it has to wait for all the packets to come in So one of your processes is sort of like stuck dealing with this slow client. With Puma, uh, our threaded model allows us to do other stuff while we're in between the waiting for these packets from that client. And that allows us to deal with slow clients in a way that, that just Unicorn by itself can't. So if you don't want to or can't run Nginx or some other proxy in front of Unicorn, you kind of are stuck with Puma, I, I would say at this point. Like you, you, That's really the only good choice out there. Otherwise, you're kind of screwed when uh, somebody, you know, you get a lot of mobile traffic on a cell network because um, those clients will take up way more resources than they need to. Um, so uh, I obviously think everyone should probably use, I can't think of a scenario where people shouldn't use Puma to put it that way. Like I can't think of a scenario where it's like, use unicorn instead or use uh, a passenger instead. I mean, one thing we can't do, which, 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 uh, you know, passenger can is, is sell you a support contract. So like, if you really want that for your app server, like go, you know, talk to fusion for fusion enterprise. Um, But uh, otherwise I think, yeah, I mean, Puma is a, is an app server for all seasons. You know, even though we are multi-threaded, you can run us with one thread. Like you just change the, pool size to one, and you're now a single-threaded app server, just like Unicorn. So there's nothing that we can't do, I would say.
0: I like that attitude, Nate. (laughs) So I'd like to give you some time to discuss your thoughts on being a a maintainer on an incredibly popular tool in our community. Overall, how's that been for you?
1: Yeah, it's been fun. Um, You know, it's something that has, uh, I, I, I think I've been doing it for like four Four years now. It's been a while. It's it's starting to get up there. Maybe like three or four years. And um, you know, it's it's so much healthier now than it's ever been. Like I was just looking at the contributions graph for Puma the other day, and um, there's more activity on Puma now than there was in like 2012, and that when the project was was getting started. And um, like that's pretty good. You know, like. And, and it's not because of me, it's not because like I'm some super hacker that's in there like always pushing new code. Um, it's because I think I've tried to remove myself really from the being a blocker. Like that's, that's really what I see myself as as a maintainer. Like I have inserted myself as a blocker by being somebody who controls the big green merge button, right? And so my job is as much as possible to get out of the way, like to give a contributor or a potential contributor everything that they need so that all they have to do is just push that green button for them, right? So my role as a maintainer is, I'm just trying to be a very basic sort of like security check so nobody like, you know, puts like a Bitcoin miner in a Puma or something. And, you know, to be like a project historian, like, oh, well, we've dealt with this issue before, please go check such and such issues, right? Um, but other than that, I see my job as a maintainer not as being a cowboy coder, like super, you know, fixing every issue or whatever, but to lower the barrier to entry, to lower the barrier to pull request as far as humanly possible, which for Puma, I would say is not easy because it's like kind of a complicated uh, domain. Like, you know, the stuff we're doing with networking and multi-threading is like not your day-to-day rails sort of skill set. So like, it's kind of a new area for, I think a lot of people uh, that want to contribute and that intimidates them at first, but like, I, I think we've been doing a good job lately of getting new people involved and getting people to, uh, to contribute. Um, so, you know, I, I just really don't believe in or support this model of open source as a, a realm of like, you know, these what I would just call like cowboy super maintainers, where it's like, you know, these people that um, maintain a whole project by themselves and like uh, try to, you know, they have like a vision of this thing they're like just pushing code for every day. And I really don't believe in that. Um, I think Puma is better with more people involved and more diversity of opinions and skill sets involved. And my job is to bring in as many people as possible. Like I, I see myself more as a, a manager of Puma than a contributor, even. And um, so, yeah, you know, I, I think I, I I'm sad that that's not like a more common view in open source. I think it's sort of. Um, demonstrated by this idea that we have to pay people to, you know, maintain their open source projects. I think it's a failure of imagination that they can't build a project that is sustained by the community. I think it's like this idea that, well, if person X doesn't maintain this project, this project is dead. Like, I think an open source project with a decent user base and a bus factor of one is a failure of management. I don't think it's a failure of economics. Um, and I can think of a lot of projects in the open source community, even in Ruby, that have died because of toxic maintainers of people that don't uh, appreciate other people's contributions and and don't um, welcome contribution. And um, and those projects have died, <laughs> you know, like they didn't stick around. And uh, so by, my goal is to make Puma the anti-that, uh, to make it as big a tent as possible and to bring in as many people into the into the contributor log as possible
0: well that rolls me right into my next question so what are your thoughts on the future of the ruby and ruby on rails communities
1: well rails is man rails is like insane (laughs) like how strong it, it is like just from like a pure like a project health perspective like um you know i really like uh, just looking at like commit stats and stuff on rails. And it's like the, the speed at which we're still like trucking and like merging in like meaningful new features. And like, it's it just astounds me, you know? Um, we, I think a little bit, like I've been around and doing this long enough, you know, that like I've seen core team members like come and go and like big contributors come and go. And it's just amazing how it's like it always gets picked up by someone else like that that hole always gets filled by someone new. And it's really, really, I think a great sign that um, rails continues to do that, and um, you know, nowadays, I think what's changed is we've got some really good um, like big corporate support, particularly from Shopify um and github um and some other companies too like i know intercom has a, a um some bigger contributors now in in rails core and um so i'm pretty happy with that you know like as far at least as like uh commit velocity and like you know all the signs of like a healthy project like pull requests and issues like it just feels better than ever you know like that that perspective feels great um and uh, you know, from a like mindshare perspective, I think uh, I think that the, the luckily like the 2017 era like microservice peak has, has uh, subsided, and uh, we've all come back to to model this now. So like, you know, I I like to keep track of that sort of like how Rails is is mentioned outside of the Rails community. And I think it's just in a, we're on that, um, what is that? Like the plateau of productivity, you know, like in the, um, the that adoption model or the, the hype cycle, that's what I'm thinking of, where I think everyone realizes like what Rails is good at now and like what you, sh- if, if you, why would you use Rails new in 2020, I think is like a really well-answered question. Like if you have a, a web application backend that you need to write Rails is still the best choice. And I don't think that's really, I haven't seen it really disputed anywhere. I think some people like Python because they think it's a more widely adopted language, but I don't see too many people out there arguing that Django is like better than Rails at what it does. Um, we're still like kind of top dog from my perspective on that. And um, I'm, I'm really happy with that. And with Ruby three now, um, you know, the new features around Ractors, and the continued development that um, Takashi Kokubun does on the JIT feels really strong. And um, I'm really excited for Ract- Ractors. I think it's something that we'll obviously be looking at bringing into Puma. It's going to be kind of this painful transition for a while where it's like, if you remember like when Rails was being made thread safe, and then like all our libraries had to be made thread safe, there's like kind of this pain around that. But I think there's going to be a similar pain around Ractors. And, um, but once it comes out in Ruby 3, I think uh, we'll start doing that work. And, um, I think there's a, a very bright future ahead for, for Ruby and Rails.
0: Awesome. So how can listeners follow you, Nate?
1: Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, Nate Berkopec. I definitely probably post there the most. Um, and, uh, my, uh, site is speedshop.co. I have a newsletter on there, an email newsletter that I write to about once a week. Uh, and, uh, all my other workshops, books, products are all uh, linked there as well.
0: Yeah, I can say I'm a very loyal subscriber to your newsletter. So listeners, this is the best thing that you could do today is go and sign up for that newsletter. Nate, thank you for all your contributions to the community. Puma is amazing and we appreciate that. And listeners definitely look into signing up for the Rails Performance Workshop. Thanks for guesting again, Nate.
1: Thank you so much, Brittany